everyone. Welcome back to People Do Want to Know, your encyclopedia of remarkable Jewish people. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Mr. Eli Leonard. Eli Leonard is an undeniably Jewish comedian, writer, actor, and clown. Leonard has written storylines and appeared on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm. You can find Eli at Hollywood Laugh Factory, opening shows for headliner Elon Gold, and traveling on tour with the Chosen Comedy Festival. Eli is a member of the internet sketch group No That's Okay. Their TBS pilot, Eli in a Big Shirt, can be seen on Eternal Family. He also performs a solo show, Good Showbiz, at the Elysian Theater in Los Angeles and around the country. Actually, if you're in L.A., Eli's performing this show on February 15th at the Elysian Theater. The link for tickets is in the description of the episode. I have known Eli since I was maybe 14 years old. We went to the same Jewish camp growing up, Herzl Camp. Eli was a legend at our camp and way too cool for me. And it's a total privilege to have him on as our second guest. Eli's journey into comedy is quite special, which you'll hear about shortly in the episode. We discuss him being a Jewish comic, what the Jewish audience is like, and have a really fun conversation about comedy in general. I'm going to warn you up front. I have a total bias for bringing on comedians to this podcast because anyone who knows me knows I'm obsessed with comedy. I even took a stand-up class. What's special about hearing Eli speak is he'll tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly of show business. He gave me a new sense of appreciation for the world of comedy, especially in Jewish spaces. It's a sense of appreciation I didn't necessarily have before. But anyway, enough from me. Please enjoy this episode. Eli, it's so good to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us on People Do Want to Know. Let's let's get going. Tell us about yourself. What do you do and how did you get there? Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me on People Do Want to Know. I'm Eli. I'm Eli Leonard. I'm a comedian um, and a sort of a writer, an actor. And I say sort of because, you know, it's not like I'm doing everything every day. You know, I'm, I guess I'm a... Uh, I think I would cringe at saying this earlier in my life, but at this point, it's true. I'm, I'm a multi-hyphenate. Yeah, I'm a bit of a multi-hyphenate. Sorry, sorry, folks. And it's not like I'm a CEO and uh, a father. You know, I am an actor and a writer and a comedian and a clown. You know, if you want to get into a little bit more of that, I'm, I guess I am a brother, you know, a son, an uncle, um, a dog father. But yeah, how did I get here? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know how I got here. And if you want me to do an elevator pitch about my life, I don't think you're going to get it. But I came out to, to LA in 2015 in hopes of being a funny person that could get a job doing that. And it took me like five years to get a job doing that because I was mainly a person who could uh, fetch things for other people. And those people happened to be funny. So I was working as like a production assistant on comedy shows for a while out here. TV shows like Party Over Here, which was produced by The Lonely Island. And someone on the staff there worked at Curb Your Enthusiasm. Her name's Tracy Shaw. She sort of gave me my first jobs in Hollywood. Um, and she, I kind of owe her my entire life. I kind of owe Tracy Shaw everything. So if Tracy Shaw hears this, and I have her number, I could just thank her, but if she hears this, just I'm acknowledging Tracy Shaw as sort of the person who started everything for me. Probably doesn't even realize that. I mean, maybe she does. I think I've told her before. But anyways, it's interesting because only recently have I thought of what I do as a career. It's it's been a, it's been mainly a a delusion or a dream for a long time. Something that I I guess would have been called like a, a hobby to many. Um, doing comedy, doing comedy like nightly and um, getting on stage as much as I can. But recently I've been able to um, earn a, a bit of a living from it. Not exorbitant, you know, very modest. I would say maybe too modest to get by. You know, I'm, I'm not doing very well financially, uh, personally at least, you know. I mean, my parents have money. I I, I don't, you know. So I'm going to have to wait a long time to get that that money from them. Um, hopefully, God willing. God willing, I have a long time to wait until I get my parents' money. Um, <laughs> let's see. What am I at? What's the question? My career? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, 
I, as you can tell, it's like, I've never been interviewed for a job. I haven't been interviewed for a real job in so long. I don't want to talk about my career. Oh, what have I done? All right. I'll list my accolades. I, um, Ugh, Led the comedy crazy. show at Herzl Camp. Oh right, okay. First of all, oh, okay, all right. I'll get to my roots. Yeah, all right. I did a, I did, yeah, I did the comedy show at, at my summer camp, Herzl Camp, which is where you and I met. You know, I was yes. sort of, I was sort of a counselor. You were, um, you were a camper, and then you were a counselor, and I was a program director. So you know, we went to the same summer camp, you and me, and you, yes. and we remember each other from then. Well, I'm surprised you remember me because you were way too cool for me, Eli. Yeah, you know, I was just a counselor. You know, I was a counselor. You weren't one of my, you weren't one of my campers. You know, you were a different age group. You know, I guess we could have, you know, we were sort of rivals. My my campers and you would have been bitter, bitter rivals, you know. So I wouldn't want to talk to you so much, you know, because talking to the enemy. Kadima Biachat, right? That's, you were the year younger than, yeah, you were the year younger than the kids I was staffed for. Yeah, there was a comedy show called 12 Gates. At Herzl Camp, which was a Saturday night, um, end of Shabbat, before Havdalah, sort of vaudeville review of the week at camp that has been around since the 80s and has been a tradition at that summer camp for, yeah, for, I guess, 40-something years now. And I don't know if they still do it, but they, I, I hope they do, but maybe maybe they don't. But who knows? I guess someone might know, but I don't know. I did that with a couple of friends of mine, Sam Siegel and, and Noah Sanders and Aiden Pink and Adam Levitt. And then, you know, later it was uh, Eden Rosenblum. I would do this, these characters, you know, every week um, in front of all these campers. And, you know, I really like to do it. You know, I'd rather, I'd much rather be like writing for this show during the week than I would trying to get laid during Shabbat, you know, it was a great excuse to not be around my campers if I was preparing this great show. So I saw it as a way out of any sort of unnecessary social time or doing my job as a counselor. You know, I got to write comedy instead of hanging out with the campers. And Do you think you knew then that you wanted to do comedy or was it well before? I mean, it was like probably a feeling before but 12 gates definitely was the reason why i was like you know what and the these and these 400 campers are they laugh they laugh harder when i'm up there than they do when other people are up there and i thought oh that's interesting maybe maybe i should that should be my life then <laughs> and i want to mention our camp it wasn't some like shitty you know, play put together by a couple of campers. The production quality of these 12 Gates shows were really high. It's real comedic writing experience. I think as real as anyone at that age could get. And they had props. And if um, counselors had days off, they would buy materials and drive them back to camp. The production quality was really high. Yeah, I mean, and we got very lucky with the people that were involved in the show with us because... We had um, Aiden Pink, who was a year older than the main cast, and he was a brilliant writer, like such a funny comedy writer that pretty much made the show go on his own. And then we had these uh, these twins, the Potash twins, who are now, you know, sort of reaching some sort of notoriety in the food host game, you know, like they're sort of getting some, some, some fame and success, um, but they both play... They played trumpet and trombone and we had like a band, you know, it was the first time that 12 Gates had a band. So our year did definitely up the quality of production and we worked really hard on it because it was just like, we all really loved it, you know, and we, we didn't want to make any, anything that people didn't like, you know, we wanted to try things and push the envelope, but we didn't ever want to, we didn't want to fail. So, you know, by the end we, we made like a movie and a musical and, you know, those were sort of never done before. Yeah, it was, it 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 was yeah so it's it's easy i guess to maybe say oh you know this stupid little thing on saturday nights how could that go to become a thought that you could go from there to hollywood but you know there were there were two counselors before named jason shapiro and jake lieberman who were um like 6 years older than me who were my counselors and they were in 12 gates when i was a camper 
and they went out and they became comedy writers or comedy producers. And so I just saw that there was like, <laughs> it's funny, like this, this, this path that could be taken. And it's, it was like, I didn't know anything about it except for that people had jobs in comedy that had gone to camp. So that's sort of why I thought like, oh, I could move there and give it a try. Thanks so much for sharing that. And tell me now, as you had transitioned out of college and moved to LA, what was that experience like? Like, how was it starting to write, starting to do comedy, working at Curb? Talk to me about that experience. All right. So when I first moved to Los Angeles in 2015, it was the fall. And I had come out for a job working for a company that had produced Jackass and this show Ridiculousness. And I had an internship there going into my senior year of college. And, you know, I thought that I, I had this job, you know, I, I was told I had this job waiting for me when I got back. You know, I moved my whole life to L.A., okay? And then, you know, I had everything in my car, and I show up for the first day of work, and the producer was like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What am I doing here? They're like, yeah, what, what are you doing here? And I was like, uh, here to work. So what had happened was the person who hired me had gone to New York to work with a director in the two weeks that I had reached out last. So I was like, my next, my first day is coming up, but I, and I moved everything out for it, but it was not communicated that I would be there. So I didn't actually have like a job. So I showed up for a job that I didn't have that started to become like hell. Like I needed to get money in an apartment. So I was staying in friends apartments, like in their living room and their extra bedroom, like on an air mattress for like four or five months until I got my first job, which was Tracy Shaw, who hired me on to party over here. And at that point, you know, I was able to, you know, just sort of get get a little bit of uh, footing financially to get an apartment. And at that time, I was also going and doing like UCB improv classes and like sketch writing classes and getting on stage as an improviser as much as I could. But that was really, really beginner stuff. So those first those first years were like really, really tough. I wouldn't really recommend coming out to LA without a job. <laughs> um, Makes sense, you. <laughs> yeah. uh, or like staying here if you don't have one. Like that was real hell, you know. And I I had to get a job as like a, a coconut water um, ambassador, you know. Like a I would hand out coconut water at like events for free, you know, or grocery stores, even, you know, like I was just one of the sampler people. I had to scrape by doing just anything. At that point, I was just trying to get my chops under me and so confused about how the business worked and how, you know, getting a a writing job worked. And I still kind of am, you know, I don't, no one ever, no one gets writing jobs. You know, even writers don't get writing jobs. There's no security in doing comedy. And when I moved out here, I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll have some sort of security. And now it's sort of become that. So then I was out here for two years. I was living in LA for two years, scraping by. I had not worked in a while, so I was losing my savings. And I was writing a screenplay with a friend. And we like decided, you know, we're just going to go for it. And then we had a producer for that. And then they backed out at the last minute. Like we had all of our cast set and everything. The script was written and they had, you know just backed out like two weeks before shoot. And we were just really young and unable to do business like that. You know, I didn't, we didn't have anyone looking out for us. So I was like in a dark place where I had lost my money. I, my movie wasn't getting made and I was not, you know, I really wanted to be a comedian still and a performer, but LA was just not working out. And then Tracy texted me about this job. She was working at Curvy Enthusiasm season eight, you know, which was, it it took that five year hiatus after season eight. So season nine started up five years later and she reached out to me like I'm in this, in this place of desperation and financial insecurity. And she reaches out saying there's this job at Curb Your Enthusiasm. The job is basically you would just be getting Larry David his lunch. Do you want to apply for it? And I was like, yeah, of course I want to apply for that. That sounds incredible. So as I, you know, I was packing my bags to go to Chicago so that I could live there and like, you know, be around more people that I knew and 
have a better life there and, you know, get good at comedy there. But then I get this text and it, you know, they, it pulls me back in, you know, Hollywood for the first time pulled me, pulled me back in. That's how I got that job. Um, I just, you know, interviewed for it and got it. And then I started working for Larry David, like in his office and then Jeff Schaefer and Laura Stryker and then Kate Shriver, like all these great producers. Yeah. That's, that's how that started. You know, that's how I got the job at Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's not some some crazy connection I had, you know, it was really just because I told the person I worked for at my first job that I wanted to be a comedy writer. And she just remembered that. I guess it was important to like, let her know that at some point. <laughs> I have this idea that when Larry saw you, he was like, you kind of look like me, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who say that I look like him and that I, uh, I have some of his mannerisms which I don't deny. I don't deny that at all. But I don't think he saw it that way. I don't think he saw it that way for, I guess, ever. You know, they had a Young Larry storyline on season 11, and I didn't get the part, you know, so that... Which is an abomination, if you ask me. It's the greatest casting mishap of all time. And the greatest casting mistake. Yeah, ever. In the history of television. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure of that. Although the people who played it were good, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying they weren't good, but I cannot believe I did not get that part and it will haunt me until I die. Let's hope it also haunts Larry, huh? Yeah. No, I don't want him to haunt him. I want him to, <laughs> I want him to think about it if he was doing like a biopic, but I don't want it to haunt him. And, the, you know, he casts like hundreds of people a year to think that one person not being cast in the role they wanted would affect him was is like scary because that means that there are so many people who are like he's disappointing and he would have to consider <laughs> but that would be hell yeah seriously and another question i had for you is now as you've developed you know your set and your shows that you're writing your work you are a jewish comic like through and through when did you decide yeah. that yeah. you wanted that to be your identity well, it is my identity. No one's going to believe me if I if I get on stage and start talking about like Ford Mustangs and drinking milk. Like no one, it's just not like real life for me. It did, you know, when I started doing stand up, you just start with what you got, like what you, what anything you can talk about that you know, you know, that you can try and make funny, you, you just use. And I guess that's just the stuff that I knew, you know? And so I was working with that. And the way I, I work through material I don't always go up with something that I thought of behind the scenes like I'll 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 use the stage to write a lot too which I don't know is like something that people stand by as a as a mode but I don't know I do it and it generates a lot of stuff like especially at open mics I would see at open mics too just a lot of people you know it was it was easy for people to notice that I was Jewish and I that just like would break the ice and then I could get into stuff that I wanted to talk about so really it was just like an opening an introduction more and more at these open mics I started to find that people were making pretty anti-semitic jokes you know non-jews would be making anti-semitic jokes like whether or not they knew it singling me out like when they had the a joke that they were like a cheap Jew joke you know they would be like this guy knows what I'm talking about or they'd be like looking re- me right in the eyes or something and and then I was like I started being in open mics and I would have to like I felt compelled afterwards if I was going up after them in their set to you know talk about that and that would often get like big laughs too because I'd be like you know that that was anti-semitic you just did something anti-semitic and everyone just saw that you know we, we all saw it then it just started it stayed with me you know it just that it's just an energy, you know, the Jewish energy, the the spirit of it just comes through me. And, you know, I'm just, I was raised in a a Jewish home and I went to a Jewish summer camp and I went to synagogue every week growing up. So it's all these things are just like, so like ingrained in me that I, I, I couldn't not be a Jewish comedian. Like it's just, it would be impossible. Why do you think Jews and comedy are so intertwined? I think it is a definite mode of survival for people who are tortured and in pain. And that's sort of like the real reason, you know. It's hard to get by without music or 
a sense of humor or things that bring you joy. You know, you people won't wouldn't survive without these things. You know, when you see people who are suffering, the most beauty comes out of dancing and music and and putting smile on each other's faces. You know, those are the things that people remember about the people when they see their stories. I mean, it's really that's where like the personality of the community comes out and it's like it's it's beautiful but it's it's too bad that it took suffering to be seen and so i think that's obviously part of it the torment that our people have faced for all this time i don't know there's just something so funny about about being jewish and having this little like it's you know it's it's not like a secret what our religion but like it's in a different language and we're you know all the all of life is unfolding in front of you in a synagogue. It's everything that is happening to people. Like, you know, everyone's stories from what the sort of the gossip, you know, you see people like, I don't know, there was a, there was a singer at, at in the choir at my temple who had this red face whenever he would sing. My brothers and I would just crack up like this guy's just singing and his face turned so red. I don't know. That just became funny. It was just came out of a synagogue. I can't explain it. I don't know. I can't, I can't like put my finger on exactly why all this stuff, all the like little yadidles and yadoidles are funny. You know, the little Hebrew words and it's like a whole religion. It's, it's done in minor chord. It's just, it's a sadness that's like expressed with full volume. And I don't know. I think that's funny. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. I honestly don't. I've thought about it a lot. And it's obviously, you know, really related to like generational trauma, but yeah. And do you think, can Jew jokes ever be funny? I think Jew jokes can be funny. I think Jew jokes can be very, very funny. I mean, is it a stereotypical Jew joke? You're like, oh, money. I mean, the way I said that, I think people might've laughed. I think that was kind of funny. I I laughed. (laughs) You know, but, but money, uh, but, um, but I guess if, you know, if a Gentile said that, you know, making fun of a Jew, I don't know, maybe that'd be funny too. But if you if you start using humor as a way to attack a group of people and not out of a place of like love or admiration or joy, it can be really taxing to take on as a group. Jews have had to face jokes coming from everywhere. And, you know, we've seen over the years that obviously it's not a joke to some of the people who are expressing it. So... I think they can be funny. They can, of course, be funny. It's just like, okay, if it makes you laugh, it's funny. I don't know. Like Jew jokes make some people laugh. And sometimes as a Jewish comedian, I see what audiences are laughing at about Jewish jokes. And I'm like, that's the wrong kind of laugh. You know, if they're laughing at this stereotype, if they're laughing because someone is mentioning a stereotype and they agree with it, that becomes really unfunny to me as a performer. And that's something I would like to call out. Looking Jewish, acting Jewish, Jewish food, Jewish traditions, they're funny and they can be talked about. It's interesting that you mention admiration as one of the ways in which jokes about Jewish people can be funny or acceptable. When I went to Japan in December, we went to the JCC. It's in Tokyo, the JCC's in Tokyo. The rabbi there told us that in Japan, there's like a total fascination with Jews and that there's a best-selling book in Japan called The Jewish Way of Doing Business. That's See, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like that is hilarious to me because that's the funniest book title I've ever heard. And it's, is it written by a Jew? No, no, it's written by a Japanese man. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, they just like they're studying... Jews in business somehow, like they're deciphering some code of Jewish business. Like we're, you know, that we're not aware of. Yeah. yeah, we're, yeah <laughs> that, we, that we ourselves aren't writing. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, yeah. But it's, it's funny because in, in one way it is, I mean, you just read that title. You're like, okay, well that's gotta be anti-Semitic, but I don't know. It could come from a place of of admiration, you know, I don't, I forget the word for it, but it's like, it's not like racism. It's like admiration. Oh, like these Jews are, are so, they're just so 
good in business and they're so smart and and um, they make so much money. That's so, and I'm, I'd like to be just like that, but it's, you know, it's like misguided. Yeah. And it got me thinking, I think in the last year or two, when you've been performing at the Jewish comedy festival there, it's, I would argue probably a hundred percent Jewish audience, maybe, you know, 98%. Yeah. What do you find about performing for a Jewish audience? It's got to be different from an audience at any other open mic or something like that. But yeah. Is, yeah. is a Jewish audience more tough to crack? Like, what are your thoughts? It's it's hard for Jewish audiences to put away the rest of their their thoughts when they're at a Jewish comedy show. You know, like a lot of people just go to comedy shows to be entertained. I mean, this might be an oversimplification of the, our people, but you know, we're, we can be very analytical. So a lot of the times it's like, well, is that, is that punchline true? Is that, is that really, a, is that really what's happening? Or why did he say that? Is this guy okay? Is this guy, is, is he all right on stage? Is he saying something <laughs> that's going to affect all of us? Oh, Jews love, love to say stuff about how, that Jew, that Jew, Jew joke is harmful to all Jews in a room full of all Jews. It's like, I'm just saying it to you. Who's it harming? You just didn't like it. And that's fine. Like, that's, you know, boomy. Honestly, I'd prefer to get booed than for someone to come up to me afterwards and say that I should be careful with what I say. You know, like recently I did a joke and, you know, it, was, it, it did well, you know, and I was like, it, it's this is a bit dark. Okay, this is a bit of gallows humor, but I did this joke about how, you know, I, I talk a lot about how, you know, I, I try to be a good um, role model for Jews so that people don't think that we are the stereotypical way. But recently I realized that like, you know, at my core, you know, like the, the darkest parts of my brain, like they are, they are, there's definitely a Jewish stereotype in there, you know, a little, a little Jewish goblin, whatever the fuck it is. But um, cause I, you know, in my deepest, darkest depressions, you know, I'm looking for a, a gun online and I realize, uh, you know, to, to end my life with. Right. And I'm, and I realize I have the, the filter for the results price low to high. And I'm like, I was gonna say, did you look up a promo code? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm looking for a deal. I'm, I'm on my death, you know, <laughs> like, like whatever money I saved is going to roll over to the next life or something. But this person comes up to me afterwards and is like, you know, you re I really, can you just not do that? Can you just not say that joke right now, please? Cause we're having such a hard time already as is. And I'm like, yeah, I know that joke actually, that actually, that happened. So I just said something that happened and I, and now I'm just saying it. I noticed it and now I'm saying it on stage and she's like, Oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you not do that though? And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm willing to say something about my life that I'm lamenting. And it, make, it made the whole crowd laugh. And then this one Jewish woman comes up to me afterwards and she's just worried how it's going to affect all Jews. And I really don't like that was that was me personally. I was talking about myself, how there is a part of me that in my depression realized that this idea of the Jewish stereotype could make me laugh. Like it could make me laugh and it pulled me out of a somber mood, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I have to find joy in that. And that, and I do by talking about it. So I don't know if everyone listening to this knows this, but I recently took a stand-up class at the Comedy Cellar. I showed Eli, I think the very first draft I ever wrote of my jokes, they were horrible. They were awful, Eli. They've improved markedly, exponentially since yeah, you've last seen it. I'll, I'll post post my set. But why I'm bringing this up is because when I was getting help from a friend who does stand up, I remember he heard some of my jokes and he was like, you know, Margarita, you should really think about relatability because self-deprecating jokes are out right now. And I was like, uh, have you ever heard a Jewish comic do stand up? <laughs> Ever, <laughs> yeah. Self-deprecating yeah. jokes are the the foundation on which a Jewish stand-up set is built. Yeah, it can be. I mean, it is. I, or, I have a hard time believing that. Yeah, a Jewish persona, you know, at least you know, Jew, like the the Jewish stand-up 
can definitely start from self-deprecation. And I definitely used to a lot, and I think it still does. But I do think that a lot of Jewish comedians, when they start, and I'm included in this, rely heavily on Jewish deprecation because it is relatable because people already don't like Jews. So it's like, you know, you're just saying the thing that everyone is already thinking or already has this idea of what is true about Jews and it's stereotypical and it's not really kosher, you know, but for standups, you know, it, you, you have to get good at standup to like really be a standup. You know, you have to like get better at the craft. You have to start somewhere. And if that's going to get you up on stage at an open mic and maybe a show in front of a few people, like, I think that's fine. And just work towards not doing that. Like just work towards a place where you're not just going for the edge of the line or past the line. And like, you're going for shock value. Um, yeah. Jews are not punching bags. Their, their sets don't have to be punching bags. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and it does and the punching bag itself doesn't have to be a pair of Jewish nuts, you know, like it's not, it's not like you don't have to be, we don't have to be punching at our own. It's a good way to write jokes. If you, if you need to start writing and you're really compelled to do it, just start writing jokes. I don't know. Well, why am I giving advice? How did this become advice? I'm not giving advice. <laughs> don't don't share any secrets. I agree. <laughs> uh, the other question I have for you is there's like a whole renaissance of Jewish comics right now. And comedy in general is very in, I think. Part of it is probably because of TikTok. It's a new form of medium in which comedians share a lot of their content. That's how they get discovered. I've discovered a ton of comics through through TikTok that are now some of my favorites. Where do you think comedy is headed? I don't really know. I mean, I I can see like uh, there are a lot of Jews who have been discovered on TikTok and stuff because now they're able to be seen and their stuff is relating to people. Jewish people online are Jews offline and we all sort of like comedy. So if, if a from crowd sees a comedian making from jokes, you know, like very religious, very observant, you know, specific jokes that they've never seen before. That's, they can get a big audience from that. You know, someone can get a big audience because it's an untapped uh, audience. And um, so I think that's why you do see more religious Jews on TikTok and Instagram and getting notoriety or more popular because they, they are able to use their traditions and be very specific with them. And it it's catering to an audience that isn't used to being catered to. In that way, I do see comedy becoming more and more specific to the groups that people come from. You know, like it, it can get more segmented, which I think is a blessing. You know, it could be a little bit of a curse, but it's also a blessing because, you know, groups that that don't get to hear a lot of stand-up about their culture are now getting to hear it from inside of their culture rather than from outside of it, where it's more like, you know, you're throwing stones at a group. So now the stones are being thrown from within and, you know, it's, it's funny because they can punch up instead of being punched down upon. This actually, this is kind of nerdy, but I work in advertising and the same phenomenon is happening in advertising. Do you remember like in the early 2000s when we knew all of the jingles, like the best part of waking up, soldiers yeah. in your cup, like yeah. all of us knew the same advertising jingles and now we all get served personalized advertising. So it's very segmented, like you said, yes. by yes. what um, the internet knows about us. And because of that, advertisement is not communal, it's not entertaining, and it's not delightful, dare I say, like it was earlier. And if if we go down this path of segmenting comedy too, I worry we're not going to have this communal quality where we could all laugh together irrespective of who we are. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it is a bummer. I mean, there I don't know how many universal stand-ups there are anymore you know how many stand-ups are that everybody adores and you know maybe maybe there never was because i wasn't alive during the time of the stand-ups who were i guess you know i guess seinfeld was pretty universally adored and 
Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Rodney Dangerfield, like some of these just classic like showmen, comedians, performers, these just sort of these legends, you know, were at the top of the game and everybody knew who they were because there was a late night show for them. And, and then they would get based on how well they did there, they could get a career in TV or film. And that used to be a way of life for the comedian was trying to get on that type of show. But now there's no real way to start. I mean, there are still um, to, to start to get notoriety or to start to become like a household name. You know, like you do see a lot of most of the the people on on TV or who have Netflix specials or deals like most of them, you know, are, are a bit older. You know, they're a bit older comedians. You know, they've been at it for years and years and they're veterans of the game and they deserve them. Uh, m- more power to them. You're not seeing a platform for young comics in a way that we used to have. You know, I feel it kind of stinks because I missed out on that time. You know, selfishly, I, I wish I was born in a different era, but it is sort of the way it, it is right now. We, we just don't have a ubiquity of humorous language. And I guess maybe we never did, but it seems based on how many people adored comics in the past that there may have, there may used to have been like these, a group of people that everybody did love. Obviously Cosby ended up being what he ended up being, but he was universally adored. And like, there's a whole other section of them, like Robin Williams and, Jim Carrey, they are beloved comics, yeah. but they're they're a different type of comic. They had a shorter stint on the stages, like in stand-up, and they went quickly into acting. Right, that's true. I mean, Jim Carrey especially. Robin Williams was doing stand-up like throughout his career, but Jim Carrey is definitely one of them. And, and he, he was doing well in Canada, and then he came to America. And he was, some people, I don't know if there are a lot of people now who you don't, from a young age, someone just saw like, oh, they have it. And then they get picked up and they get to be, I guess, famous. You know, like the closest we have now would be like maybe Pete Davidson because he was young when he was on SNL. And then he became this, this, he's more, I think people think he's more famous than he is like funny. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying that's people see him more for his life than his standup, in my opinion, at least. But yeah, there there aren't the Jim Carries, you know. There aren't really the Sarah Silvermans who are just when they're young, people are just like, "Wow, what is this? This is so great!" And they just take off, like just from there. Eli, do you have a comedy bestie? A comedy bestie? Yeah. Like, well, it's just someone who's my best friend in comedy. Yeah, or someone that you riff off all your ideas with. You run everything by them. You trust their judgment. Do you have a well, comedy oh bestie? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I really do have a lot of people like this because you, well, you have to get feedback from everybody. But I work so much with uh, my friends in this little sketch group called No That's Okay, which is Will Duncan and Gabe Ross, Gabe Bernini, um, Andrea Adolph, and Chloe Cherry. And so that group I are sort of like comedy besties. And then I guess Elon Gold, you know, probably Elon Gold is my comedy bestie. Because I spent a lot of time with him because I opened for him and I'm sort of a part of his family at this point. He's not really part of mine. You know, he doesn't know my whole family yet, but I'm part of his for sure. I also wanted to ask you about the character that you play in your show, Good Showbiz. Who is he and how did you come up with him? So, yeah, Good Showbiz is a one-man show that I've been producing for the last year um, through a work-in-progress series at the Elysian Theater in Los Angeles. and the the conceit of the show is that it is a show that is also a business. So you're watching show business be made and to be in the audience of the show Good Showbiz is to be um, a necessary component to business. So you get a job in showbiz just by showing up and participating in the show. And I came up with this character, you know, it was, it was just through throwing stuff at the wall. I, I knew that I wanted to make a classic Jewish show with classic Jewish elements from theater in the past. And I was always, I always loved, you know, the bottle dance from Fiddler on the Roof. And I wanted to put that in. And, you know, I, I, I love certain monologues that I put in and, and stand up. So I wanted to make it all these little Jewish components. 
And then I needed a, a way to weave through it and sort of make it a story or make it a more of a show than just saying, I'm just going to do these three things that Jews have done in the past. And then my character just becomes the the star of showbiz and is relying on the rest of the audience to be the producer and the the lighting and, you know, and, and so it was just like, you know, what is this, what is sort of the classic, you know, we, you always hear about these old producers, like, oh, this kid's got moxie, you know, like they'll say stuff like that. And, and then I'm like, okay, so I want to be the person who both has the moxie and says you got moxie. So I just had to sort of combine the two sides of show business to create this character, both the performer and the executive, basically. Thank you for answering that question. Moving on, what do you think is misunderstood by the public about show business? And just to mention, I think you're a good person to answer this question because you've seen it from all the dimensions. You were the guy that brought Larry David lunch, but also the guy that did open mics and also the guy that produced a show and now performs at these um, incredible comedy shows and in the Jewish spaces. So you've seen it from all angles. And that's why I was like, that's a question I got to ask. Okay. I think there's a lot of things that people don't get right about show business, but one of them is that we don't just like all know each other. Well, people still ask me for favors for Larry David and they can, it's like, I haven't worked for the man in his office in years and people are still, and they make crazy requests. Like I I was once asked if I thought that I could get someone, an adult woman, to go on a date with Jerry Seinfeld. I never met Jerry, never met Jerry. And then this woman also lived in Minnesota. So it was like, and, but they were really, (laughs) they were really asking. I mean, this is the, it's, it's far fetched, but people think that, you know, just because people are in show business that they, they are around all the people in show business. And it's not true at all. Working on a, a movie or a TV show you know, you can get pretty close with some people, but you move on. It's just like, it's like a carnival, you know, you just set up and break down after a month and and everyone moves on to the next thing. One other thing that people don't get right about show business is just how long the days can be, um, like on productions, you know, the, the, the hours are pretty ruthless and the sleep schedule, you, you can't have a regular sleep schedule if you're working in show business, like in one way or another. I mean, I guess if you're working on the corporate side or something, but when I was working on production, my days could start at 5 a.m. and go until 7 p.m. And then the next day would be 6 a.m. Or sometimes it would be start your day at midnight and end the day at, at 1 p.m. And it just move along, you know, whether or not the, the shooting schedule called for day or night scenes. And then, you know, as a stand-up, on the other hand, I have to be most alive at 8 p.m., at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. You know, I have to be really at my peak. I don't have a regular life. (laughs) I don't have, I can't schedule things the same way that I used to be able to schedule them or like the way that my, my brothers who work corporate jobs or like run their own businesses or my parents who, who work jobs, job jobs, you know, we are not the same breed of person once we get into our society. So now that you're kind of progressing in your career. What would you say is a career goal that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? I look forward to resting. I always look forward to sleep. And that's a goal. I mean, I truly hope for the next year I get some great sleep because that will bring me great sets. I guess more realistically, whatever a career goal. It's weird because there are these there are these pillars of status that you sort of rungs of status, I guess, that I could be shooting for, you know, like there's a, a something called the Netflix is a joke festival. There's a, a festival called just for laughs. There are all of these sort of like markers of success for a young comic or, you know, a starting out comic where it's like, if you get past this, then, you know, now you're really in the game, but it's, it's not necessarily true. I mean, they are great. Those things are great to achieve, and they're milestones that should be celebrated if you if you do end up getting them. And I think I am being pressed to believe that, you know, oh, this year I'd like to get on JFL. I would like to have some sort of showcase for Netflix as a joke. But 
that it's not tangible for me in the same way as goal of making my own pilot, shooting my own short film. You know, I have a couple of like really great projects that I'm excited about. You know, I can't really speak on them, but I, I hope to be able to finish producing them and then shooting them and then editing them and putting them out. And then what happens from there, I don't know. Because I could say, oh, I want to get into a film festival. But even that, it's just when you set up these markers for yourself in this business, it's really difficult. You, you don't just get a writing job. You don't just get on SNL. You don't just get an SNL audition. My goals are more things that I want to make that I think I can make. I want to be able to put out things that I make this year. Yeah. And when you set those goals in an industry like that, I feel like it sets you up for a lot of disappointment and heartbreak over things you can't control. Yes. Yes. Because they're all seen, you know, there's definitely a lot of people who come out to LA and their number one goal is to get passed at the comedy store. Their number one goal is to get on a house team at Upright Citizens Brigade. It's to get an agent. And these things aren't necessarily the stepping stones for iconic success, but they are presented to the hungry comedic public as these necessary achievements. And I think that can be really tough to put an entire life onto that. I did improv for five years and I thought I needed to go towards that because that's how I could get funny. But I, I realized, you know, I, improv just is not my game. It's just, you know, I, I, I can't play it the same way that great improvisers can. And then I found clown and stand up and I was able to, you know, bring some stuff that I learned from improv into it. It was, it was different. So, so the idea that I was like, I need to get on a house team or something. When I first joined the improv community, I was really focused on like being one of the people in the in crowd. And, you know, I, I, I just, it wasn't for me. And maybe if I push myself another five, 10 years at it, but I didn't love it that way. So I found something that I love now and I'm doing it on my own. And that's really nice, but it's weird. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm pivoting so much about talking about my career goals in thinking about what I want to do with my career. Now, it's not like some milestone because I, that has really been harmful in the past. It's not up to me. I can work really hard and some of those things might end up coming because of it. But more now, it just becomes I want to be able to make my own stuff and I hope people like it. Yeah, be happy with the material that you've put together Yeah, and the work that you've done on your own jokes. And that joke writing process, it's very hard. And I feel like once the light turns on, once you start thinking about it, everything becomes a bit like you're always writing stuff down turning on your voice memo app so you can record a conversation like the stream of consciousness. It never ends. Yeah. it's it. I mean, this is, yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, and I, I think a lot of great comics will tell you this, just that anything you see that's funny, you just put it down. You have to just put it down somewhere and you know, you never know what it's going to come back. I put the stupidest thing down in my notes app the other day. <laughs> Oh yeah. This is so dumb. Yeah. I'll I'll read it to you verbatim lest oh, I you know misspeak about the privacy of your little comedy journal. That's very this is very intimate. Yeah. Very intimate. Everything, all for you. This is very vulnerable okay. to the audience. It's very vulnerable because it's probably not gonna be it's probably not gonna be good yet. It's probably not good yet. I'm not yeah. saying it can't be. <laughs> I, okay, this is exactly what I wrote word for word in my notes app. It's never a local train to the bathroom. Always express. Huh. <laughs> like what? Well, you got to go there fast. Yeah. <laughs> never really dallying to the bathroom. I'm like bright red right now from embarrassment. That's funny. That's kind of funny. Exactly. And I was like, this uh-huh. has legs. This yeah. could be something good. This uh-huh. could be something really yeah, good. You don't, you, don't go on a, not, you don't take the scenic route to the bathroom. Yeah. And sometimes I'll like write something down and I will spend hours working on a joke. Hours. And then I'll read it and nobody will find it funny. 
and people will tell me to scrap it. And then the stupidest thought that I think nobody will laugh at gets the most laughs. The funniest joke in my set, Eli, I prepared a five-minute set for my class that I will present on Sunday at the Comedy Cellar. And the funniest joke in the class is just me speaking Russian and then interjecting English words in that. Like, there, no talent required. Just the knowledge of two languages. That is all. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing what you can do with the... Uh... That hurts. No, it's funny, though. <laughs> you have to be able to use that. Like, that might hurt, but... That's like a lot of physical theater and, and clown performance is like you just use everything that you have and you never know like what's going to stick. And that probably is very funny. Like it's always funny to hear a word, you know, in gibberish. Within, and also you know. the Russian language is generally funny because it has a lot of consonant sounds. I'll yeah. also tell you my opening joke from the set. We'll see if it gets a laugh out of you or a little heh. One of those. Okay, so you mentioned that something that you do to kind of disarm the room or connect with the audience at the beginning is make a comment about yourself, either your appearance or your name or the fact that you're Jewish. And a lot of comics do that when they come on stage because it like clears the air, you know, for your set. So I did something similar. My opening joke is, hi, everyone. I'm Margarita, like the drink, which works because I'm salty and cheap. Huh. <laughs> the silence is deafening. No, I did, did, did you hear that one? <laughs> I had this. This came out. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I got from Eli. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Eli, thanks so much for coming on. What's the best way to keep up with you on social? What shows do you have going on that people can attend? Tell okay. us what's next for you. Okay, yeah. So I will be in Minnesota on February 22nd headlining the Twin Cities Jewish Humor Festival. And then on that Sunday, I'm doing a, like a, a keynote panel with a, another comedian about Judaism and comedy or anti-Semitism and comedy, you know, whether or not it's funny, sort of like we talked about here. And then I will be in Miami from Wednesday, February 28th through March 1st. And I'm doing a show with Elon Gold and Stephanie Younger on the 28th and 29th in Aventura, um, which is by Miami. And you can find all of these tickets on my Instagram, which is at self underscore Eli. Yeah, there's just a link in my biography, you know, my link in bio, link in bio. You can click the link in bio and get tickets. Just the link in um, bio. Yeah. Those are the shows that I have. And then I'm going to be in Austin from the 1st of March through like the 10th. And I'll be doing my one-man show there. The last question I want to ask as I ask of every guest is, who would you like to nominate for the podcast? Uh, who do I want to? 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 Pe people do you want to know? I mean, oh, oh, oh. yeah, why don't you try and get my friend um, Gabe Ross on this? Great. I would be happy to take that nomination. Thank you, Eli. It has been such a pleasure to have you on. We've covered so much in the world of comedy, things I didn't know we could cover. So it's been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and rate us five stars. Be the first to hear our episodes by subscribing to People Do You Want to Know wherever you get your podcasts. And for exclusive content, follow us on Instagram at People Do You Want to Know.